always um, feel kind of strange saying this because um, I, I mean, I really like this passage. But when uh, a, a pastor stands up and says, I really like this passage, the first thought that comes into your mind, well, what about all the other passages that you preach, right? But I, I like those too. But one of the things that I really like about this one is that it, it has a way of simultaneously um, elevating you and putting you in, in your place. And that's not easy to do, right? To let you know exactly who you are, um, and not all of that is a compliment, and yet uh, give you hope for the future and, and um, to lean into eternity with a lot of joy. And so, um, what is this passage about? What's well, about who John the Baptist is in relation to Jesus and whether or not he sees that. Um, this is not just a wisdom issue or a perspective issue, an intellectual issue. You know, like, does he get that? Does, does John the Baptist get who he is and who Jesus is, right? It's not just uh, can you do the mechanics of the theology or do you know the organizational hierarchy? It's not just that. It's a character issue. Because mostly, what keeps a person from getting this is not their understanding of theology on this rudimentary level. It's what gets in the way of you getting this is your heart. Right? It's a character issue. Now, now, this passage has bigger implications than this. I'm just saying at its most superficial level, that's what it's about, is John has this ministry and role, and does he see who he is in relation to who Jesus is? And is he good with that? Every disciple, in some ways, is in the same position as John the Baptist. So if you believe in Jesus on some level, you're going to have to sort out for yourself exactly what John is sorting out here in this passage. He's really testifying to who God is and how God has worked in his life, and he's testifying to, to Christ um, when this question gets raised. So as a believer, just maybe start by asking yourself this question. And if, you're, and if you're not a believer yet, we have good word for you as well because he's that good. But if you're a believer, ask yourself, maybe start with this question, do I understand who I am in relation to Jesus? Like, do I get that? And does that show up in my mindset? Like, just the way I see the world and the way I see myself, does it show up in my attitude? Uh, does it show up as contentment and courage? And does that show up in uh, how I treat other people, right? My perspective on who they are. So you might ask, as we work our way through the passage, whose status and influence am I working for, right? Is it my name or is it a better name? Is it the name of Christ? And we'll, we're just going to walk through the passage and flesh it out this way, right? Um, because to some degree, uh, we're going to put ourselves in John the Baptist situation. And he starts in the passage, the first few verses, with the setting. Right? He's just orienting us. He's putting us in a, a position to get our bearings. And what you find in, in verses 23 to 24, you, you've got these two baptizing ministries. And, you know, if you read it, you realize John the Baptist ministry was first. It says, you know, you've got Jesus on one hand and John on the other. And it says they were baptizing. It clarifies in chapter 4, verse 2, that in Jesus' baptism ministry, he wasn't the one performing the baptism. It was his disciples. Um, it was probably 
you know, a good call on Jesus' part, um, because if you were somebody who got baptized by Jesus, just people being the way they were, you, you would, they would probably create a club, right? You know, go on a speaking tour, write a book, get a book published, you know, what it meant to be baptized by Jesus, parenthetically, how I'm better than you are, you know, how people operate, right? There's also another little note if you notice in these first few verses that he says, this is going on, you've got these two baptizing ministries before John went into prison. And part of what the author is doing here, John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, as he, as he writes this, his gospel, his written gospel comes latest out of the four. And he's orienting his reader to basically say, hey, you know how the synoptics, those other three gospels, you know how they reference John's uh, imprisonment? going to orient you to this. And and John was so well known and so well respected, even a hundred years after, a a big question in the early days is we know John the Baptist is a prophet from God. How do we compare John the Baptist and Jesus? Okay, that's how big a deal he was. And, uh, and you know, he had this controversial ministry, but he had this big impact. And this is still being fleshed out in in the first century. It's kind of what this passage itself is about. All right. It's a little early to do this, but let's, let's do an aside. I'm talking about baptism to baptizing ministries. Why do we, Lifeway Church, why do we baptize the way we do? Ever ask yourself that question? Or uh, maybe as a new believer, somebody interested in the question, or somebody who doesn't have a, a credo Baptist background, do you ever ask yourself, you know, why do those crazy Baptists do that? Why do they like fill a big tub and you know, go through the, the whole rigmarole of saying, do you believe in Jesus? And the person says yes, and the very next thing they do is that, you know, they plunge them under the water and they bring them back out. Why do we do it that way? We call that believer's baptism. We baptize believers by immersion. Now, why? Well, part of the answer to that question goes back to the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus, Jesus still has a baptism ministry going on, okay? And so after his uh, death on the cross for sins, burial, and resurrection. He's gathering with his disciples. This is recorded at the end of the, the book of Matthew. And we call it the Great Commission, and he commissions them. And what he says is, go, make disciples, make disciples, baptizing them. Baptize those disciples you make, the people who believe in Jesus, the people who are following Jesus. And then that word baptism for us, it's a transliteration, and all that means is, it, it's, it's the word in Greek, baptizo, and what we, did, what we did in translation is rather than come up with our English equivalent is we took that word because it seemed like super spiritual and churchy, and we just put it like, oh, super holy word, baptism, right? The word was a really common word. It just means to dip or immerse or to plunge or to dunk. It's a baptism. It just means to immerse. Um, That's one of the reasons, but also this, the symbol that baptism by immersion gives you is a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection, which is the theological implication of baptism. So every believer who stands up and does that says, listen, my Lord has called me to be baptized. My Lord still has a, a baptism ministry. And part of the reason for that is that I'm testifying through this that I'm identifying myself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
that his death on the cross was for my sins, that his burial and resurrection, I am with him, and as he overcame death, I, I share in that victory with him because of who he is. But if you know, now, why am I bringing this up? Look in this passage, and where did they go? It says at the, um, um, in verse 23, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Why? Because water was plentiful there. Right now, like my Presbyterian friends, I love them, but I would just say in passages like this, if you sprinkle, all you need is kind of like a cup of water. You don't need to go anywhere where there's lots of water. Right? And so whenever you put all that together, the theological implications, what Jesus calls us to do is baptize believers, followers of him, and the word means right, immersion to symbolize death, burial, and resurrection. And what do we see here in the text that corroborates that ministry? Um, they're there because there's a lot of water there. Because that's what baptism, that's how you do it. So anyway, there's our aside. Um, let's get back to the two baptizing ministries side by side. The point that uh, John, the author, is making here is that these two are in close proximity to each other. That's the setting. Get your bearings. Oh, okay, just to make sure I understand, Jesus has a baptism ministry, and John the Baptist has a baptism ministry. John's was first, and that's what he was doing. He established it. That's what he became known for, thus the name the Baptist, right? That's why they called him that. I'll just, on a really superficial level, ask yourself, like, Okay, whenever I'm driving up to an intersection and there are two gas stations, which one do I go to? I don't know. Probably, maybe I just go to the one that doesn't make me take a left turn across traffic. Just go to the more convenient one, right? Or, I don't want to use the names here, but there were two big hardware stores that may or may not, but are still in existence. And uh, what, what the reputation one major hardware store did was they were great at like kind of the, the research aspect, surveying, this is where we can build one of these uh, hardware stores and people will come, you know, be great for business. And their primary competitor, rather than doing that themselves, all they did was wait for their competitor to build uh, one of their hardware stores and then they just, you know, built one right across the road, okay? And, uh, but so you've got two there together. Which one do you go to? Do you, do you go to this one? Um, you know, do you go to Lace or Rome Depot? You know, which one do you go to? Um, and it kind of depends on, and then there's, a, there's even more, uh, there are trickier marketing questions on that. Is, is that actually bad for business? You remember, like, Coke and Pepsi when I, were, when I was a kid? They were always in these uh, commercials about, you know, who's better and who's worse and we're better than you are and we pass these taste tests. Who takes a t- soft drink taste test? Anyway. You know who really liked the two major soft drink situation? The two major soft drinks. Because as long as there was a one and two, it really kind of didn't matter who was three. And what John is doing is, as, as we get our bearings on this and a perspective, why, why does he bring this up? The question is, is you've got these two really unique ministries in close proximity to each other, and what's the impact going to be? How's this going to work? I remember John's ministry and Jesus' ministry and all of that. And that segues into this thought, is what we're going to find in the next section, is, is, is John positioning himself to compete with Jesus or vice versa? And because that seems to be the issue, it starts off in verse 25, there's this discussion over purification. 
a Jew or some Jews were talking to John's disciples about purification. What does this have to do uh, with everything, and why is it in this context of these two baptizing ministries? Well, most likely, what they were doing is they were questioning the legitimacy of John's baptizing ministry. Listen, there are Old Testament purification laws. We recently, as Lifeway, went through those, right? Leviticus. How does somebody who becomes unclean, uh, who is unclean, become clean before the Lord. And so the question, you might put it this way, okay, well, if the issue of purification is getting right with God or being clean before God so that you can be in his presence, the setting looks like John the Baptist has these two competitors to his ministry. And one, we could call it just from, you know, our perspective these days, we could call it the establishment. The Old Testament ritual laws being administrated by the authorities, and that's probably what this discussion and debate is. Hey, listen, we have a process, John. You know, everybody's who's siphoning off of who. People are going to John, and they're getting baptized in droves. We have this process that's in the Old Testament law. What's the problem? Is that not good enough for you? And then on the other hand, so you've got the establishment and Old Testament ritual laws being administrated by the authorities there. And then the other is Jesus. And his disciples in verse 26 talk to Jesus about this, and they, uh, there's a concern that they have. Now keep in mind the context is that they believe that they were doing God's work. What if you, now keep in mind, let's just say you don't know the end of the story and all of that, and you're serving with John the Baptist, and you you hear his preaching, you see, this guy's a really authentic guy. He loves God. He has a zeal for God. And you get to be a part of his ministry. You know God is in this. That's their frame of, of reference. And when you get to verse 26, they say to him, Rabbi, he who was, in other words, Jesus, who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. We're losing business. Right? Um. It looks like, kind of low maybe, like Jesus sets up shop right next to his and he's siphoning off John's influence. Is that cool? I mean, would you do that to your friend and that sort of... So, so John's disciples are raising this question of like, this guy's stealing our thunder. And the rest of this section, uh, John walks them through an answer. And that's what we're going to look at for this part. And he starts off in verse 27... And he talks about in a person's place in general. Let's read that together. A person, he says to them, cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. I want you to think about that. I need to think about that. John right away points them to the sovereignty of God. Listen, there is a God who reigns. Look at, you, look at a person, you, wherever you are, do you realize that every good thing you have, even one thing he says, every good thing you have, your position, your place, uh, you know, some, some kind of opportunity or, or whatever, that you got that from heaven. That was God's choice. Do you know that? Do you know that? Do you know, and I mean, this is true, he's speaking truth to to his people then, but this is just a, a real truth now. Out of the sovereignty of God, every good thing you have was given to you by God. And then the follow-on question is, well, then what do you do with it? 
I mean, what do you think something like that is for? If you have something good, let's just say you have something good and powerful that other people notice. Well, then what do you use that for? Right? So he's ta- he talks about a person's place in general. What if, what if you have this kind of status? Where did that come from? Do you recognize that? And then he, he transitions in verse 28 to his own place in particular. And notice what he says there. here. He goes, you, you yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I've been sent. God's choice was to send me on my particular ministry. That's got to be good enough, right? Um, I told you myself, you're looking for the Christ. My ministry is to point to the Christ, but that's not who I am. I have this, you're looking at this role that I'm playing out. That was God's choice all along. And then he goes to this analogy, uh, you know, kind of like the fire ant uh, analogy and that sort of thing. As another aside that will not be helpful to the sermon, as soon as you said that, me growing up in Oklahoma, I know you guys probably have never heard that I lived in Oklahoma for a time, right? Um, one of my early memories was being by a pond in Oklahoma as a little kid, like, you know, six, seven, eight years old, and I was just standing there minding my own business, and then I started screaming and crying, and my dad ripping off my pants and throwing me in the pond, right? Fire ants were at the root of that story. So I like the analogy. What John the Baptist does here is he points to uh, a picture of something. He points to a wedding. Now, This imagery is going to be really rich to them because uh, these folks are steeped in Old Testament Scripture. And they look at that and they're going to remember that oftentimes God's people, ultimately the church, but God's people are referenced, pictured as the Lord's bride. And what John says is, I'm not the groom, man. I'm like, I'm just the best man. So that's not my girl. Um, I, I am elated for the groom because this is his day. This is his place. Uh, what kind of best man wants to undermine that? What kind, of, uh, what kind of best man grumbles that he didn't get enough of, you know, screen time or stage time? You know, uh, how wrong would it be to act like this is my day, uh, my girl, my place? I'm just elated to see the groom and to see the joy that's going to that's gonna come out of that. And that's totally my role. And so the obvious conclusion out of that in verse 30 is like the wedding. Like, like whoever goes to a wedding and says, you know the problem with this is that the groom kept getting in the way of the best man. The only person who says that is the girl out there who's dating the best man, right? Everybody, everybody else, it's, it's the groom and the marriage to the bride. And all he does is he points out, you know, here's the obvious question, like, oh, this is bad for business. We're losing influence. And it's as though John says, do you remember my ministry? My ministry is a losing influence kind of ministry. That's why I am here. I am here to announce and say, ta-da, here you go. And once I go, here you go, there I go. Right? I don't really have a role other than once the, sh- the, the spotlight is, is shining on the one. So out of that, my place in his place, I must decrease and he must increase. Siphoning off, this is already his. I was just a steward of it. And when he came onto the scene, I'm just showing what is already there, that Jesus is the one, that he's the Christ. All right, so there's that, how John answers the competing with Jesus uh, question. 
And then there's the last part of the passage we're going to look at is verses 31 through 36. And this is probably an extended comment from the author. Okay? And uh, this is really about seeing the place of Jesus. Because John sees that. John knows who he is in relation to Jesus. And primarily because Jesus is so conspicuously good at being Lord and Savior because that's exactly who he is. So in, in, in verses 31 and 32, what, what, what the author here does, it's possible it's John the Baptist, but it's true regardless, is that he points to Jesus' place. Now, let's read this together so that we can, we can make sense of what he's saying here. He who comes from above, this is going to be Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That's John the Baptist or you or me. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And what's he saying there? Well, do the comparison. John the Baptist is earthly, right? That comes with incredible limitations. There's nothing wrong with being finite, but, uh, but you need to know you're finite. You need to know that there are limits to, to who you are and what you can do and the swath that you can cut, as the old timers used to say. But where's Jesus from? Jesus isn't earthly, right? He's from above. And what that means is he's from there. He, he reigns. Everything has been given to him. And so he speaks of where he's from. There is absolutely no way to improve on his representation of heaven, of glory, of God. Right? Because the one from God has been sent to represent that. And so there's this vast disparity in comparison. As good a dude as John the Baptist was and as the way God was with him, there's just a disparity in the power of the ministry and the scope of it, right? John is here and Jesus is ultimate. He reigns over everything. He's from there. He speaks to what he's seen and who he is as a first-hander. But there's a problem. Into verse 32, nobody receives his testimony. Like here, Jesus has been sent from God. He, he's from there. Uh, he represents God. And so what he does from there is he's like, what is your response? It's a big problem. God has sent the one. Do you receive him? It seems like nobody was. And the, the end of the passage talks about the value of seeing Jesus for who he is and the importance of seeing Jesus for who he is, seeing his place. Right? If... If John talks about a person's place in general and his place in particular, and then he points to Jesus' ultimate place, what's the difference? Look at verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. Back in the old days, I say old days, ancient times, a seal would be a wax seal, right? And that's where you would impress like your signet ring or something like that on it to show that it was it authenticated that it was from you. And an expression here is what he's saying is whenever you do this, you are representing that God is true. When you receive Jesus, you're receiving God. When you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God. And so he, he plays this out. Well, who is Jesus? Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. You know, who is Jesus? Well, we're, we're supposed to see him this way, that he's the sent one. It's a big issue in John. It's one of the interesting things. If you, if you read John and you work your way through, a big debate is where is Jesus from? Does he know the Father, God, 
and was he actually sent by God the Father? It shows up again and again and again. God so loved the world that he sent his son. Plenty potentiary, right? The ultimate representation with full authority of who God is. God sent is a big issue throughout. He speaks the words of God. He has the spirit without measure. So, Old Testament prophet had the spirit in the measure of his ministry. Which is, I mean, could be great, but it was always going to be infinitely less than Jesus' ministry. He's loved by the Father. He's given all things by the Father. That's who he is. He speaks the words of God. He's sent from God. He has the Spirit without measure. Uh, he's given all things. And therefore, what? Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Uh, the Father and the Son are so closely connected that to reject the Son is to reject the Father. It's the same thing. So what are you called to do? Believe for eternal life. Uh, don't believe and you remain in condemnation with God's wrath on you. Okay, so that, that's the scope of it. So let me wrap up with three things. How do you take this? What we do, steady state, week in and week out, we open God's word together, we share it together, we want to understand it, and as God's people, we want to receive it. We want to submit ourselves to it. So how do we do that here? Let me give you three ideas. Number one is the issue of belief, right? And here, again, is another theme in John. Believe in the Son. Believe in the Son. Why? Well, because He's the one. He is sent from God, right? He, he bears full representation of God. And verse 36 tells you this is the dividing line. There is no other route. Even among the, the most good, ambitious, creative, reflective, whatever good spiritual adjective you want to come up with kind of people, that, that you could come up with your best not-Jesus option and you won't get there. There are, two, there are two ways you're going to go because the Son has come, and that is the Father's representation. There remains no sacrifice from, for sins aside from Jesus, Right? And so you're either going to reject Jesus, not obey, not submit to him, and there's no life there. You'll remain under God's wrath, or you're going to receive Jesus and receive through that eternal life. The sting of, uh, of sin can't overcome you because Jesus has overcome it. And so the issue of belief, you know, I just ask you right now, uh, the testimony of Scripture again and again is that Jesus came as God's son, died on the cross to bear our sins, and that we're told again and again, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone? Because you can have life, but you'll only have it through Jesus. That is the only way. I invite you to do that right now. You don't, you don't need some big fancy ceremony. What you need to do is to turn to God and repent of your sins and ask for forgiveness on the basis of who Jesus is. To ask for life through who Jesus is. He's the only one who can give it because he's the only one who's overcome death, right? A second issue, okay, is the issue of baptism. I, I told you, you, you may not have, uh, you may have thought that these were careless words that, that Jesus continues to have a baptism ministry today. He does through the Great Commission. Right? We're called to follow Jesus and to show that through baptism. When he calls you to follow him and, and to do that in baptism, in baptism what you're doing is you're testifying, I'm identifying with Jesus in his, in his uh, uh, death, burial, and resurrection. 
And every disciple is supposed to make that clear and, and see the huge honor of doing that. And I would just ask you, if you're somebody who's believed in Jesus, but on the baptism thing, you, you just tell yourself, um, you know, I don't want to get wet in public, right? Uh, I don't, I don't want to deal with that. I'm kind of nervous about that. I'm, I'm nervous in front of other people. All of that stuff can be prayed through, dealt with, and that sort of thing. When Jesus calls you, he calls you to die to yourself and find your life in him. Have you done that? Um, what you need to do on that is like, step up, let's do it, right? If you're a believer, join the church, uh, get baptized, and to, to identify yourself publicly with Jesus that way in exactly the way he's called you to do. So there's the issue of baptism. And finally, the issue of place. Let's go back to that question that uh, John has asked. Hey, Jesus is still in your thunder. Are you okay with that? And John says, in a nutshell, yeah, that was kind of the point. Okay. Are you okay with Jesus stealing your thunder? Are you okay that you're not a big deal uh, if you get to share in his victory? Uh, listen, what, what I do is a huge honor. I mean, it is a tremendous honor to be able to do what I do, okay? Um, it's a blessing. It's a, the idea that I could take God's word and to share it with people so that they would hear um, through his word uh, who God is and what he's about, it's a huge honor to do that. And so sometimes people look at like, oh, well, what about this that you have to go through? You know, there are perks and then there, there are things that are difficult to deal with. Listen, serving Jesus the way I do, it's, it's a tremendous honor. I just tell you this, what if you, what if you teach our kids? What if you're teaching a kid's class? <laughs> that's a huge honor to be able to take those kids. You're doing the same thing. They're made in the image of God. They have the same problem with sin that we all do, right? And you're opening God's word and you're pointing them to Jesus and you get that ministry of being able to represent Jesus and it'd be great if the kids in the class love you, you know? I mean, I, I sat in, uh, I, I joined my wife's class a couple of weeks back and I mean, I just sat there and I was so impressed uh, with my wife. I admired my, my wife, right? And I was like, she's the best kids teacher ever, right? You know, um, maybe, maybe some bias there and all of that. But Kara shouldn't read uh, her press clippings from me. Because the real honor is not whether the kids in there are going, Miss Kara, Miss Kara, Miss Kara. The real honor is that she gets to point them to Jesus and that there's eternal fruit in that, right? I mean, maybe you, maybe you do the books, maybe you vacuum, maybe you greet people at the door, right? Maybe you, maybe you organize certain ministries. There is just a huge honor in being able to serve the Lord. The question in that is really who do you want to get the glory for that? Do you want credit, glory, or do you want to be highly thought of? And John's uh, answer, when we think about his example, is he, he's, he essentially says it this way. I know exactly who I am, and I know who Jesus is, and I don't want to get those two confused. Uh, he must increase, I must decrease. My ministry is for his glory, all right? And then the question is something like this. In your efforts... Uh, your life, your ministry, your reputation. I want to ask you this, and we'll close with this. Whose name is it that you want to advance? I mean, do you want your name to be up here, or do you want the name of Christ to be up there? The world is his. 
It's great, though, to be a part of the party, right? To be um, that you're in the party, it's a huge honor. Just don't forget. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die um, and bear our sins, to overcome death so that we could have eternal life. Uh, we, we find how fragile we are as believers, as followers, because we tend um, to want to get glory that we haven't earned. Help us to learn from the example, the example of John the Baptist of uh, finding our place and being content with it and, and wanting to see you make much of it for the glory of another, because that's where our real uh, joy and victory is. So help us to learn the lesson of humility, to, to make decisions about that, but also to, see, uh, to do that because we see Jesus for who he is, the sent son who utters your very words and who accomplishes eternal life. May all believe in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.